Hi, this is Pauline at Recovery Radio, and I'd like to thank all of you who have supported us financially this year. We have been positively humbled by your expressions of gratitude. Between our YouCaring online fundraiser, our PayPal subscribers, and increased local donations, we have met our goal to raise additional monies to cover our costs for the coming year. These donations will be used to ensure that our service will continue to provide audio support to the worldwide community of recovering people. All of us here at Recovery Radio thank you from the bottom of our collective heart. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm I'm delighted to be here. And my name is Mary, and I am a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Uh, Al-Anon's third tradition tells us that the only requirement for membership in the Al-Anon program is that there be uh, uh, alcoholism in a relative or friend. And I am the granddaughter, the daughter, the aunt, the niece, the sister, the cousin, the daughter, the wife, and the mother of alcoholics. There is no doubt that I qualify for the program. However, where the doubt always came for me is is that uh, my disease is denial. And until I came to Al-Anon and I could look back on everything, I would not have placed any of those people in my life as alcoholics. You know, some of them drank too much at the wrong time with the wrong people, that kind of thing. But alcoholics, to me, were the people on 97th Street, brown paper bag, in corners, people that didn't have anything left anymore. Disease is my, is my uh, or denial is my disease. I grew up in an ordinary alcoholic home. Just a very normal alcoholic home. <laughs> Probably some of you did too. What I have discovered around the uh, normal alcoholic home is that for all of us that grew up in alcoholism, if we were to sit down and talk about it, which as children we certainly wouldn't have, because if you came from the kind of normal alcoholic home that I came from, you didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about what went on inside of your home, outside of your home. You didn't share it with your friends, your relatives. You didn't probably share it with your siblings. And so many of us grew up in... You know, uh, two-parent homes, one-parent home, one, two, three, four siblings. It doesn't really matter, the dynamics. It would always appear in retrospect that we had all grown up in a different home. It's amazing to me. And in my home was the kind that you didn't talk about what went on. My father was the alcoholic in my home, and he was uh, an incredibly... He was a brilliant man. He had the... uh, as we love to say, the potential. He had always had potential. He was a man who had uh, the ability to speak many languages fluently. He was a very musically gifted man. 
He was an incredibly physically、um, adept man. He was a good skier and skater, and so on and so forth. Very、um, had all kinds of things going for him, and he was an alcoholic. And a part of his、uh, disease was that of violence. And I grew up in a home where there was a lot of violence. I would hear the sounds in the night, like you sometimes do, and you would hear the crashing and the banging and the crying and the yelling and the different things. And again, like so many、uh, homes like that, when I would get up in the morning, because it always seemed to be me that was asking the questions. I was the youngest by a fair amount. And so obviously I hadn't lived in it and adjusted to it as well as my two older sisters had. I didn't have it quite down pat what the rules were. I was four, and I would ask my mom what had happened, and it would always be the same answer: nothing. You must have been dreaming. Must have had a nightmare. Each time, just a slight variation on that. But even as a young child, I noticed. Things and in this tiny little place that we lived in at the time, just a very very small little、uh, apartment style, there would be holes in the walls that hadn't been there the day before, and then the day after the hole had appeared in the wall, that hole now would become an archway, because my grand my my dad was a very handy guy, he could fix anything. And when I look back on it, and we didn't have much company, much visitors or anything into our house, and you can probably see the reason why they may have picked up on the fact of this tiny little place having 15 or 16 archways. There's just something not right about that. <laughs> It wasn't really the design of the day. And.、Uh, As I said, my my dad had all kinds of aspects to his disease, and、um, my sisters and I were sexually abused by my father. And again, I was the youngest, and I hadn't、uh, been around long enough to get to know the rules. And so I told my mom. And I don't know why it was then that she heard, but.、Uh, I think it was a combination of her being beat up all the time and and this this horror of what had happened to her girls, all of this reality coming into play, and、um, my dad was charged and he went away to、uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, good AA program up in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and、uh, that was the last that my dad lived with us. Many aspects to the disease of alcoholism. He in fact got some sobriety for a short period of time in Prince Albert, and so there's, you know, who knows how you how you find the different things. I've had people tell me、um, many times how fortunate I am that this happened to me, that I was able to express it to my mother. That my mother was able to charge my father. That my father was taken away. That this no longer I never had to put up anymore with the the abuse that was going on in the family. And I agree. I am fortunate that that happened and it lasted a very short period of time. 
because I know of families where it went on and on and on. I'm grateful for that part. But the disease of alcoholism in our family was such is that once that happened, it was never talked about again. And something that, although I didn't understand what was happening to me all the rest of the years that it took from then until I got into Al-Anon and started getting some, some healing, was that you can't heal what you can't feel. And everything that happened had happened to me was then stuffed away. You know, you don't talk about this anymore. You, you know, it's done. It's a done deal. You don't talk about it anymore. And, uh, and some little part of my intellect tells me, well, maybe I should have just gone on and gone on with it. But it does affect you. And um, anyway, life went on. And uh, I adapted really well to, to uh, life. I had learned some good lessons. And uh, I went out and I... Loved, I loved school, I loved people, I loved activities, I, all those kinds of things. But what I didn't know then that I know now, as I look back on it, is, is that I never allowed myself to get too close to anybody. Not to other girlfriends, certainly not to any of the fellows that I went out with. There was always a distance. And if I felt like anybody was getting too close to me, starting to know too much about me. There would always be some kind of a move or a breakup or there was something to protect me. And as I said, I didn't know that then. This just became um, a pattern with me. You know, that you would know this much of me and you would know this much of me and you would know this much of me, but nobody would ever know all of me because I knew that when people knew you and when you loved people, they hurt you. And so I set myself up and I, I protected myself very, very well. Uh, one New Year's Eve a long, long time ago, I used to say the date, but I forget it anymore because it just starts adding up to my age and I'm just not doing it. So anyway, <laughs> I was at a New Year's Eve function with my family and a fellow that I was engaged to at that time. And it, uh, it was one of these no liquor deals, you know, just go out and have a good time and so on and so forth. I had a girlfriend that uh, I had lived with and she had a different set of friends, um, emphasis on, on different set of friends. And she decided to, uh, to crash this New Year's Eve party. And uh, that New Year's Eve party went from a very quiet, sedate, family-oriented to a very uh, lively, exciting... Anyway, at midnight, uh, when a lot of this excitement had kind of started to diminish and the music was playing, which, as I remember, was horrible, there was this ball in the center of the room and I was standing underneath this spinny ball in the dark and uh, with my arms wrapped around and arms wrapped around me of this big, tall, good-looking guy who I had just met that evening. This was not the fellow that I was engaged to. And um, never did quite figure out how that happened. Never did. I mean, I am not a slow learner, but never did figure out quite how there he was. And he was to come, you know, in and out of my life for the next uh, couple of years. And, and I love to say that uh, Tom chased me until I caught him. 
and uh, you know it just was kind of a setup to, to how things would go for us. I found him to be, uh, you know, as I said, tall, dark, good-looking, and exciting, and that was something that my life was not. My life was not exciting, and I knew that when Tom was there, he was around, we would go to places. It became exciting, and I loved that, and I fed into that. Little time went by, and we really were, I think, um, in love, in lust, whatever. Uh, but we got uh, engaged, we got pregnant, and we got married, because that's the way you did it in those days. And um, we just, we were so thrilled, you know, to, to be married and, and to be expecting this child. And we had this wonderful little boy and, and uh, life was going good. Neither one of us, of course, knowing that the disease of alcoholism was already there. It was just kind of laying in wait. And uh, we moved up to Grand Prairie, and, and uh, I was a stay-at-home mom, enjoying that. And he was very involved in um, curling and football and all the different things that you know he was interested in. And I can remember having an intense amount, the feeling of isolation. You know, where I, I sometimes I just I would not be able to speak if somebody would come into our home to visit, or if I would walk my little guy down to the store, and I, I just would have this something that would come over me, and I just would not be able to even speak. And this isolation, and I would put it off to the fact that I was so far away from home and my friends and all of that, but. Again, looking back on it, what I realized is that the isolation that I was feeling had nothing to do with the distance of where we were living. The isolation had everything to do with me, and that, that disease was already starting in me. There were things that were going on with the, with the liquor that I was already uncomfortable with. You know, I have said so many times, and it took a while for it to key into me, that... Uh, Nothing really bothers me. No amount that anybody drinks, or if they drink, really bothers me. Right up until the time that I notice it. <laughs> and as much soon as I notice how much you're drinking, or you're not drinking, or if you're coughing, or if you're smoking, or if you're doing this, or if, you know, as soon as I notice it, my obsession begins. And I was fine up until that point, and then I noticed it. And the disease of alcoholism, that disease, that obsession, began with me. And we were going out to a, um, a banquet. He had been bond feeling all day, and um, versus curling, of course, you understand that, I sure didn't. <laughs> He bonfield all day, and I waited patiently for him to come pick me up, and off we were going to go, and we were going to have this nice evening out, and, you know, dancing. I love to dance. I had a babysitter, the whole works. And, and as was my deal, I was very good at planning. I could make plans really, really well. And 
You wanted to see irritation when you didn't follow the plan. He walked in the house. He was very quiet. He was very smelly. He was very swaggy. He clothes started, you know, kind of falling off of him, and up he went into the bedroom, passed out, buck naked on the bed, which, as I picture that now, is really, anyway. We, um, <laughs> he was not following my plan, and we were going to that banquet. And so what I did was I, uh, I started letting the cold water run in the bathtub, just a short way down the hall from where our bedroom was. Put the plug in and let it run for a while. Now in Grand Prairie, you got real cold water. <laughs> Didn't take a long, long time to get cold water. It was almost instantaneous. So by the time that you filled the bathtub, you know, it was practically clinking. When I have a plan, I know how to carry it through. I dragged him from that bed in the bedroom down that short hall, and I got him into the bathtub. He wasn't real pleased, but we... (laughs) He used to tell me that I was trying to drown him, and that is not true. That is not true. But sometimes you just need to do what you need to do. And I needed him sober. I I didn't realize that what I was going to get was just him awake. (laughs) I was new at it, you know. I had had some more learning to do. And, and, you know, there I am with my plan and this is my solution and, you know, give him a few dunks and, you know, off we go to the deal. And I think, and this is the whole point of it, is that I think that I have solved the problem. Because he is hung over already. This is a day thing. He is not feeling good. He is unable to take a drink because he's really not feeling good. He drinks water for the rest of the evening. Okay? Now he's doing what he has to do because he knows if he has something to drink, he's going to you know, do something. I'm going to hit him or drown him. So he's drinking water. In my mind, I think I've cured him. Those kinds of things would happen over and over and over again. And I would forget what I had done the last time. And I would do that or something similar the next time to try to get him to fit into my plan. And he would end up doing whatever it is that he needed to do. And um, so I carried on. And we came, you know, we came back uh, down to the, the city and, and he took another job and he was on the road and, you know, the, the disease really started to progress and I was on my own a lot and I found that I liked that. And I got very involved in the community and I was, you know, I was somebody. I wasn't, you know, his wife or their mother or whatever. I was doing something good and it made me feel good and I can remember at that point in my life my, my esteem once again was high. Hi. First things first, I think what it's telling me is to probably get on with it, but um, I, I, I now listen to signs. But um, 
there was going to be a function in the uh, community league and I was going to be getting this award and he was going to be in from out of town and I invited him to come to this because it was going to be a function, a nice function, it was going to be a supper, it was going to be a dance and again I love to dance so you know I want you to come with me. And he wasn't real excited about coming with me and I didn't know at the time why but he came like a dutiful husband and he didn't drink and that was something again that I never picked up on that pattern back then you know that he wouldn't drink he was getting to the point where he wouldn't drink when he was going out with me um, because he didn't know how much he was going to drink so he would just not drink and uh, I might uh, be very miserable not be real nice to be around so because he was coming out of duty for me he didn't really stay the whole night and uh, off he went home wanted me to come and of course I I was staying to finish up this evening I walked home with some friends uh, a few hours later and again didn't know it then but when he went home he um, he got to have the drink that he wanted and he got to have the right amount of drinks that he wanted and he got to have the right size you know we used to joke all of the time about you know the two fingers or the two finger drinks that he would uh, he would pour and anyway he would have he had just exactly what he needed to have and by the time I got home whatever had started to set up in him before I we had left this function had now come to full head and the, what we refer to as the green-eyed monster had appeared and when I walked in I can remember being accused of all kinds of things that, you know, hadn't happened, wouldn't happen, so on and so forth. And I guess the only thing I need for you to know is that that was a very long night. It was a very long night. And when I got up in the morning and I saw the bruises on my face and on my neck and around my body, I knew that what I had to do was I had to cover that up and put on a long sleeve turtleneck shirt and I had to cover up on my face because how could anybody know what had gone on and I came out and my son who was seven years old at the time came up to me and said mommy what happened last night I heard the noise and I heard the crashing and I heard the yelling and I heard you crying and I wanted to get up mommy I wanted to get up I didn't know what to do and then I got to start to pass on my disease and I said honey nothing happened you must have had a bad dream you must have been dreaming nothing happened everything's okay and I didn't know at the time that I was starting to pass on this disease of what you see is not what you see what you hear is not what you hear and the most important that what you feel is not what you feel that for Scott was the start of what became known as a nervous stomach that was to stay with him for years and years and years I think the sadness around that is that a few days later Tom sent this beautiful bouquet of flowers with I'm sorry on the card 
and to show you how sick I was, I took a picture of the flowers and I put the picture and the card in my photo album with a little notation on the side of it, you know, with the, the night and from Tom and several exclamation marks which would have meant diddly squat to anybody else but somehow in my sick little mind this was going to be this was the start of my keeping track of what I might need someday to prove to everybody else who thought he was the most wonderful person in the world of who he really was and I'm setting myself up for the divorce whenever my proof and I still have that picture and I still have that album and I look at it sometimes and I just I can sob because I feel so sad for that woman we had to move because you can't stay in a community that that kind of thing happens in your house even though nobody has said anything to anybody you have not even talked it out or about it to each other ever done that? all of the stuff that was going on and we would just part like this and then you know a day or two days or three days later we would come back together again and be a family and we had never talked we never talked about it and we moved out to Spruce Grove and I just knew that it was going to be different you know moving out there I didn't really want to go out there you know I was going to be way heckin' gone out in farm country and I think there was 1200 people out there when we moved out there and it was you know it certainly was different because now he was home he was not on the road anymore and his drinking was in my face and uh, the obsession just got more and more and here we were this ideal family who from the outside looked real good you know we had everything going for us we had the house we had the cars we had the you know cabin at the lake we had our kids that were involved in everything and we were involved in the community and we were you know high profile doing all the right things and people didn't see or they didn't notice or some did of when we were at a hockey game and when he would be coaching um, the hockey teams that he did a just a wonderful job of and I would have said ahead of time, please don't drink tonight. You know, don't drink around those kids. You're a good coach. You don't need to drink around those kids. And he'd tell me what he needed to tell me. And I'd go down the stairs to say something to him between periods. And as I'd be walking, I'd see him walking the other way. And he'd be down like this, and I'd see the brown paper bag. And I would feel that... <sighs> And I was the one that became known as the bank lady. Not because I was on the street or carried a bag, but that I got to the point where my anxiety attacks were so bad that I had to carry a brown paper bag in my purse. Because I never knew when something was happening with him. My life became so involved with what he was doing and what he might do and so on and so forth that I wouldn't be able to breathe the anxiety would just take over and it would start down here and it would start to close off and I would think I was going to die and so I'd get out the bag and I'd 
blowing it and people would look at me and I'd say if your son was a goaltender at this level of hockey you'd have a little anxiety too yeah I mean it's just excuse number one and I had a list of them because what we do is we get good we get good at denial you know and it's something that today I still have to watch I, I talk often about having denial it sits right on my shoulder and um, actually I'm blind in this eye so if it sits over here I'm in deep <laughs> trouble um, if denial is sitting here and I'm just you know sometimes it's just so much more comfortable to look straight ahead and decide what I want my reality to be and sometimes I get this little tap that says Mary that is not reality that is not what's going on you know gives a shake lady you need to anyway life went on and the disease of alcoholism progressed in our house just like it does I can remember going to as good upstanding parents going to uh, the high school and Spruce Grove was having a um, drug awareness night for parents well of course we were there yeah I mean of course you have to be there we were very concerned about drugs so he had a few before we went just to you know get ready to go and uh, you know I'm bitching at him all the way down there and we walk in you know there we are and uh, we listen to this uh, drug awareness and I can remember him getting very irritated because they were talking about alcohol coffee cigarettes I'm here to talk about drugs you know <laughs> anyway as we're walking out and he's I'm trying to move him out there's pamphlets all along the table and I'm you know pushing him this way and I'm picking up pamphlets going along because you know who knows I mean somebody might need those later on and um, and I got home and I quickly shoved them underneath the mattress and uh, I never read them because what did it have to do with me but if he ever needed something someday or somebody else ever needed something I had these pamphlets and I could you know probably pull them out and save whoever needed saving at that particular time we had friends who uh, who had a problem with alcoholism with alcohol they uh, you know he really had a problem I mean he was really really bad so bad that he went to Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> that's pretty bad and she being the good support person that she was went to Al-Anon once got the cure found out that she was not responsible and never went again he went to AA and found out that what you have to do is that he couldn't drink the amount of um, rye that he drank anymore but that light beer was okay and so they would come and visit us come out to our lake cabin and so on and uh, he would bring his 24 pack of light beer <laughs> anyway and I mean he would drink just enough of, of that to get to where he needed to get and she would say you know come on home and he'd say no and she'd say well I'm not responsible and then she'd get in their car and leave and leave him 
with me, so I now have two of them. And, uh, uh, you know, it, I need to tell you I was not impressed with Alanon, and because she would keep telling me that it was Alanon that told her this. I wasn't impressed on the one hand, and yet later on, thank you, uh, later on that I am not responsible and so on. It's amazing what does stick with us, you know, these different things that stick with us. So here I am, I have this friend that's gone to Al-Anon, she tells me about responsibility. He's gone to AA drinking uh, light beer. I have a girl that I hire at work that needs time off for a specific function that I find out later is a, is a convention that she goes to every year. Pamphlets start appearing on my desk at work. I am starting to get surrounded by all kinds of weird people. And, um, and I'm really, I'm going nuts because I am trying very hard to keep it together. I have a husband that is right out of control. I have two children that are doing whatever it is that they want to do. And I just, I am at loose ends everywhere. I'm at the lake and I just lose it. And I start to cry and I'm in front of his family. And I say, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. If you'll go to AA, I'll go to Al-Anon. Now, when I look back on that, that was a very loving, nice, wonderful thing for me to do, and I don't know why he just didn't pick right up on that. <laughs> he wasn't real quick either, so we just... Anyway, that fall, he found AA all by himself. He found AA, he took off in AA, he loved it, he became, he went from being strange to being weird, he floated around all over the place, he was on, you know, it's referred to as the pink cloud, his was like the pink island, and he just moved around, levitated, had the AA bus, was going all over the place, saving souls, driving me crazy. You know, we couldn't even have a discussion in the family anymore, and he'd come in and he'd say, all right, what's going on? And we wouldn't even be talking about anything that had anything to do with him. And he'd say, who are you going to blame now? Say, we're talking about there's my guests in the car. You know, like, well, who are you going to blame now? I don't drink. You know, like, what do you do? Well, the kids and I get in the car, drive to the hockey rink, talk about him all the way down there, because the guy is a jerk. Not drinking. Still strange. <laughs> Not impressed. Not impressed. Problem being that something is changing. Not me, but there is something changing. And he is not jumping in as much. And there's just some subtle changes. And we go to another New Year's Eve party. And this one is with members of AA and Al-Anon. And I go there and they are weird. These are nice people. And they are talking to each other quite nicely. Everybody is well-mannered and they're... They are laughing and they are enjoying themselves and they are having, you know, like a, a, obviously a wonderful time. And they're once again suggesting that perhaps I should think about going to Al-Anon. 
and I go to uh, an open AA meeting and I listen to this fellow talking about things that he should not be talking about you know sharing things that he should not be sharing with strangers laughing and all of the people in the audience are laughing and I'm you know the tears are just flowing down my face and I'm saying you know should he be seeing things like that about his mother you know and everybody is and I'm thinking oh god they really are weird I don't know that I want anything to do with these people they are laughing this guy's pouring out his heart and they're laughing at him well of course what I didn't understand is that all of them were in a place that I was a long ways away from and that is one where they had started to be able to laugh that they had started their healing process you know that uh, they were feeling and so they were healing and they were able to laugh with each other they were able to laugh at themselves and I was so far away from that and finally I took somebody else's advice big deal and I went to my first Al-Anon meeting and it was um, it was scary that meeting was a huge meeting and um, they split off into different groups and I was overwhelmed with the number of people that were there number one in the back of my head it was like I am no longer alone because even though logically I understood that I was not, could not possibly be the only one that felt the way I felt, that was living in the situation that I was living in, and that had these crazy kids, you know, that, that I did. I felt very much alone because I had never shared it with anybody. And then I go to that first Al-Anon meeting and they explain to me that alcoholism is a disease and that it's a family disease and that if we have lived with the disease of alcoholism we are affected by the disease of alcoholism and our children are and so on and so forth and they talked about those three C's you know that I had not caused it that I could not cure it and that I could not control it and when they put it in that, that simple term I could understand that and I would start to have all of these flashbacks through our years of the different times that I had felt it was my fault that yes I had caused it and certainly all of these varying times that I had tried to drown him or no, uh, get him wet uh, <laughs> get him sober uh, you know, the times that I placed the pillow over his head because of his snoring. You know, all of those things. <laughs> all of those different things. And everything started to come together for me. And, uh, and I loved it at the end when they said, keep coming back. You know, because it, and it sounded so sincere. And so I did. Number one, because I was also in a place where I didn't know what would happen to me if I didn't keep coming back. I honestly didn't know if there were like Al-Anon police or Al-Anon, you know, like they sent somebody out after you if you didn't show up the next week. I, you know, like I really didn't know and I wanted to do it right. So I kept going back. And again, you know, no different than so many other people, you know, when you hear these 12 steps and you think, okay, 12 steps, they want you to come back six weeks. That must mean two steps a week. Then so six weeks and twelve and 
I don't understand about the traditions. I didn't know how you fit those in, and but I knew that I could do it. Six weeks, all right. I can do this. I can apply myself. I'm a good student. I will learn, and life will be wonderful. And you know, he got in like six weeks ahead of me, and he is on a mission to go through the 12 steps faster than anybody ever has. And I'm just, you know, and I'm watching him and I'm trying to figure all of this out. Oh, God, I had such a busy mind. And I'm trying to get this all figured out and I know all I care about is I think he's on step nine. See how sick I was? I've already got an opportunity for a program, but boy, God, I'm more interested in what's going on over there. Uh-huh. He's on step nine. I better get ready. <laughs> because I just know that it's going to take a long time for him to do this one. <laughs> and I can remember him coming to me. You know, and this is coming from the loving, caring, compassionate woman who is already calling herself an Al-Anon. When her husband asked her to do a third step with him, and I won't even go into the kind of language that I used to tell him that, thank you very much, I wouldn't. That's where I was. And then I got very focused on this ninth step. And so the day came, and, you know, I'm sitting at the table and I'm looking pretty good. Well, not too good, because I need him to still know that these, a lot of these wrinkles, certainly the ones around my mouth, are caused from him. So I'm sitting there (coughs) and he looks at me and he just has this most sincere look on his face. And I can tell that he's really struggling with this so I want to, you know, be helpful. And he says to me, I I don't know how I am ever going to be able to make amends just gotten calling. <laughs> and he gets up and he leaves. Six sick woman. You know, you can fast forward this whole thing and I can tell you how many times that I have gone through the steps and what I have learned about myself each time. And I can remember that You know, the second step, and God, I was insulted by the second step. Because that being restored to sanity had an implication that at one point I had not been saying, Hello, have you been with me? (laughs) And as people who know me know that how I did this program in the beginning and how I quite often will still do it is that I have my books, I have my steps, I have, and I have a dictionary. Because when I was new in the program, I didn't agree with a lot that was written in my books. I did not like how the steps were written for me and I needed to get an exact definition of what these things meant. And sometimes I had to go to another dictionary because the first dictionary did not have the meaning that I wanted. I need you to tell I need you to know that I have nine dictionaries <laughs> until I could find the meaning. But when I think back on that first time when I was doing this and I came to the 
dictionary meaning or the understanding of, of that sanity of being clearness of thinking. And then it hit me. Yeah. Insane. That, that muddled thinking, that mind that was constantly full of him and them and her and, you know, and what I had to understand, there was so much tied up in that because when your mind is so focused, so obsessed with another person and they're drinking, what I discovered in that was that I had not been emotionally available to my children. You know, each step gave me more and more of an understanding of who I was and some of the amends that I was going to have to make further down the road. Because when I first got into Al-Anon, it wasn't about me and what I had done. It was about you and what you had done. To be able to put them together and to dig and to find out who it was I was, what I was responsible for, and what I could do to change that. I am so grateful for that. And, you know, the, the, the humor that comes from looking back and seeing well, all I have to do is look at my bookcase and see all those dictionaries and I understand. <laughs> and I am brought back to where I need to be. Al-Anon is something that I have, um, I, that I love. I absolutely love it. It has given me so much. I knew right from the beginning when I started listening to people that were able to share of themselves in such an open, honest way that I would maybe eventually be able to do that. When I first went to Al-Anon, I had a hard time saying my name. And I still believe that they tricked me into the first time that I talked at the meeting. You know, I had it all figured out and you go the right way around from the... and they went the left way and I was the first one on the left. And I didn't have a chance to say no. And I started talking and I haven't shut up since. I have always been involved in some way in Al-Anon because I believe that that's what we do when we're given this, what we have been given, that we need to give back. And I, you know, started off as a treasurer in my group and I did all of those group positions while I was working my steps and understanding the traditions and getting myself healthy. Because what I did want, you know, what I did not want to do was what I had done in the very, very beginning, those first few weeks. I don't know about the rest of you, but when you get that idea of that first step and how sick you are, and that second step, that you're crazy and you somewhat accept that, and you immediately want to go to the 12th step and help everybody. You know, what I was doing was carrying the mess. I had not yet had the opportunity to clear everything for myself and I was taking bits and pieces of the program and I was going and spreading the mess. I had no message to give other than keep coming back Mary, <laughs> it will work if you get in there and work up. So I needed that first three and four years to really, really work at my program and with my program and then I started getting busy outside of um, the group. And a few years ago I was fortunate enough to be selected as the uh, delegate for Alberta Northwest Territories. And I have had the most incredible journey in that three years 
Uh, it has taken me to so many different places. It has helped fill in a lot of the holes that I still have in my life about my family and so on. The tape from Winnipeg was an example. I got an, an opportunity to meet with a cousin on my father's side who was able um, to fill in for me my father's background. And once again, although I had gotten to the place where I was no longer judging my parents about, you know, who and what I was, or their parents or their parents, it really put things into perspective of where he had come from. And it was also interesting for me, too, to find out that that cousin of mine was a 25-year member of Al-Anon who had been the Western Canada trustee, and I had never known that. You know, and it was only because of, of service in Al-Anon that we both got to meet each other, you know, and, and such a gift. The uh, second year that I was um, delegate, we got an opportunity to go to Stepping Stones, the home of uh, Bill and Lois Wilson, which was an incredible experience. And first of all, I was a rhiny bag that said, no, I don't think we should be doing this. It's costing too much money. I think we should just get down to business. You know, I'm a serious person. Let's get this work done. However, they had other plans, and I had to go along with them. So we went, and um, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful spiritual experience. And when I was given an opportunity to go back into the house on my own because there had been a little picture there that I wanted to go back and see. I went back into the house and in their bedroom by their dresser there was a little black and white picture of Bill and Lois standing in the middle of a gymnasium floor with ribbons kind of across the top of it. And they're just standing there and he's hugging her, holding her. And I can remember looking at that and all of a sudden going back to that time in that gymnasium floor with Tom and I standing in the middle. And it put so much into perspective that here, all these years later, everything that we had had to go through in order to get to this program, this couple that the other side of the world practically and they're busy getting a program together and I know that it's because of AA and Al-Anon it's because of how each of us individually have worked our programs and worked for our marriage because I'll tell you truthfully two years into uh, Al-Anon I was ready to run I was much closer to divorce than I'd ever been before you know and then all of a sudden when I got healthy enough, I didn't want to leave, you know, it's like before I wasn't well enough to leave and then when I got healthy enough, I didn't want to leave, you know, we got willing to work on our marriage. And uh, to be standing there and looking at this picture of Bill and Lois and being so grateful for what they had done in order for us to receive that gift, you know, it was just a wonderful spiritual moment. And then after that, to, to be able to make some plans, and uh, last year Tom and I had our, a re renewal of our wedding vows with both of our children taking part with our 35th wedding anniversary. And that was an incredible gift. You know, when I look back again at, 
at uh, where we had come from and everything that we had had to go through to get to where we were. You remember in the early years of, of Al-Anon and working so hard on my program and, and starting to understand about this emotional abandonment that I had done to my kids and, and being made very aware again that I had taken that, that idea that Al-Anon had given me of detachment and I felt truly in my heart that I was detaching from my children. But what I had to have brought back into my face when my, you know, my son, you know, was on his third suicide attempt and, is that I hadn't detached from them, I had deserted them. That I was, I had been given this program and I was working it and it was doing a wonderful amount of things for me. But my two children did not have the benefit of a program. And I had just turned them away. And I can remember thinking, oh, what these two need is a program. And so I started praying that they would each find a program. Be careful what you pray for. Because over the period of the next, well, six years probably in Scott's case, I watched what happens. I had forgotten what it takes for us to get to this program. And I watched my son almost die many times. I knew that when he would leave on a weekend that he wouldn't be concerned about where he ended up because he knew he would end up in a jail somewhere and he would have a good night in some part of Alberta. I would pray that he would live, you know, and I would constantly then just get down to thy will be done. You know, you know, watching him go and watching him do all of the things that he had to do. He, um, I can remember that boy had such a green thumb. I used to water all of his plants in his room, the ones with the, you know, like the special lights and so on. And then he had some in the basement as well. And, uh, and I was a grateful member of Al-Anon. I had no clue about marijuana. <laughs> Denial. Sitting right on my shoulder. I'm in Al-Anon. My son is a raging, you know, he's doing everything that he needs to do. He never was going to be an alcoholic, so he didn't drink for a long time because he wasn't going to be like his father. So he did drugs. And then that took him to his drug of choice, which was alcohol. And I had, and I watched where that took him, where it needed to take him. And then for a whole lot longer, I got to watch my daughter, you know, go through the, what she had to go through. And her drugs were different, you know, her drug was food, her drug was men, her drug was, you know, and it would go back and forth until she found the drug that she was comfortable with, and that was alcohol. And I was in Al-Anon, and I am so grateful that all of the, the groups that I attended, because the more that my kids were spiraling down, I had to go up and stay more level and get to as many meetings as I can, and people would just love me through all of that. You know, I am so grateful. And eventually, both of my children found uh, a program. 
and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I think that, um, oh, I don't know, the, the last few years have been filled with so many um, losses and, and so on. I mean, a lot of people know that I went through a, a big deal with losing eyesight and then gaining some back and then losing it and gaining some back and all of the adventures that, uh, that you have around that. And, uh, you know, my sister passed away and that was hard and my uncle and my first sponsor passed away and I was able to uh, be okay with that because I, I had had an opportunity to, to talk with her before she died. Um, she wasn't my last sponsor because she was one who, whose husband passed away. And uh, after 25 years in Al-Anon, she decided that she no longer needed Al-Anon because the alcoholic in her life was no longer there. And I had such a hard time around that. I had such a hard time around that. It was against everything that she had ever taught me. You know, that Al-Anon is for me. And I had a difficult time with that, but I was able to work through that. And grateful to my, my second sponsor for that as well. I have been given so many gifts with Al-Anon that uh, it would just be impossible to even share them all with you. Um, I'm glad actually that the theory is, is fun in recovery, although we didn't, you know, that doesn't maybe sound like a lot of fun. I always think how serious I am, but Al-Anon has given that to me too. Al-Anon has given me balance in my life and that I can have fun, that there are so many good things to to enjoy and, and my husband and I have a, have so much fun together. I have little grandchildren that, I mean, just them being in my presence, you know, just how can you not have fun with a two-year-old, you know? I mean, it's just an impossible thing, um, all of the gifts that, that Al-Anon has given me. I have no idea where I'm at or where I'm going, but I think I'm going to wrap up. <laughs> the, um, I'm just thinking again on the fun, the humor, the humor part. When I, I think back on um, on all those dictionaries, the not being able to understand the insanity. You know, there is a lot of humor in in the fact that I did and I still do need to always have a second opinion. You know, which is mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, God and I have been on some incredible journeys. Um, he is very, 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 very patient with me. What keeps coming to my mind is, is that closing of Al-Anon, and I guess that's what I'm just going to say, you know, that it's just me the love and the peace of the program growing you one day at a time. And if he hasn't yet, I hope that your God, your higher power, grants you the laughter, that healing laughter. Thanks very much.